Book Notes, the television program, started in April of 1989. Our third guest that month was the late journalist Bruce Otis. His book was titled From the President, Richard Nixon's Secret Files. Because the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in is on June 17th, it seemed appropriate to revisit Mr. Otis's book, which contained over 600 pages of previously unreleased memoranda from Richard Nixon and AIDS during the six years of his presidency. Bruce Otis took a deep dive into boxes of over 3.5 million pages of material that was being housed at a government warehouse in Alexandria, Virginia. What's in this 661-page book? Uh, Many of the uh, memoranda written by Richard Nixon and uh, by members of his staff um, during the course of the Nixon presidency. How did you get it? Uh, Went down to... uh, the archives uh, annex and uh, Pickett Street in Alexandria, a rather nondescript uh, uh, warehouse where they're presently being stored, and uh, began working with these documents in the uh, summer of 1987 when they were released, uh, when Richard Nixon decided not to uh, further contest the uh, release of, uh, of these documents. How many memoranda or memorandums are there in, there in this book? Uh, well, a lot. In uh, one way of looking at it, it if a uh, member of the public were to go down there and start pulling out uh, of the uh, boxes and ordering up reproduction copies of uh, the pages uh, in this, uh, the reader would spend more than $500 just in reproduction user fee uh, charges alone for these documents. And so it's a bargain at, that, at the price, if I can get in a, a sales pitch. Um, But what I did, what I saw, first of all, is that uh, simply that Richard Nixon, whether you love him or whether you hate him, is one of the most uh, prolific writer, writers of memoranda in the uh, history of the presidency. And I I tend to feel he's uh, still a champion to this day. Uh, He dictated uh, in some days as many as uh, um, two to three dozen memos in a single day. And, or single night or weekend. He usually worked nights or weekends and he wrote these in a burst. Uh, um, it would dictate uh, uh, a number of them. Of course, the system now has changed in the White House a bit. It's uh, uh, much of uh, what was done in hard copy in Nixon's time uh, is now run through computers but, uh, and word processors. But... Uh, uh, still, there's a lot of hard copy material in, being generated in, in the White House. And um, it provides a very precise uh, record of, uh, of what happened. And essentially what this book has, is the, the uh, core of it, is better than 95%, I would judge, of the memos uh, written by Mr. Nixon that have been um, uh, released to date. Uh, your book has 95% of the memos right. the, that have been released today. I looked in all of the places that uh, uh, were most likely in those archives. And keep in mind, they released uh, 3.2 million pages in 1987. And I've been through, I haven't been on through all 3.2 million pages. I've been through many hundreds of thousands of pages. But uh, it was simply not physically possible. I do continue to find, as I continue to work at the archives, uh, 
a memo uh, written by Nixon that uh, uh, on very rare occasion, one every three or four months now, but the, the great bulk of them are in, uh, in this book. And then, of course, on top of that, what we saw after we looked at the memos were a lot of very interesting staff memos and uh, written by primarily uh, Patrick Buchanan and Charles Colson and H.R. Bob Haldeman. And so the logical way to, um, uh, to deal with that simply was to uh, arrange them in, um, in chronological uh, order. And they tell a story that way of the presidency from beginning to uh, end. And in Nixon's case, of course, in the case of several of our recent presidents, it was uh, uh, not particularly uh, happy ending. But uh, you do build to a uh, climax of uh, considerable dimension in uh, uh, the early uh, summer of uh, 1972, uh, uh, late spring, with uh, the uh, Watergate break-ins. And there, there was a great deal of paper that uh, flowed through. I, I tried to leave as much of that paper flow, get as much of that into the book as possible, particularly from uh, those first uh, six months of 1972. What happened is that after uh, James McCord uh, started to sing, uh, as it were, tell his story to the courts in uh, May or in April of, I believe it was, of 1973, Richard Nixon simply stopped uh, the dictating uh, memoranda. I think there were two in the final 16 months of his presidency, and I've checked with the archives. Uh, there are no further Nixon memoranda to come out from that period. There are some others. Um, from the earlier period that will come out. Many are being um, still held, of course, for national security classification reasons. And then there's uh, the other uh, concept, which is uh, uh, the fact that Mr. Nixon requested in 87 that 150,000 pages uh, be withheld. And um, the archives for under, under reasons which are granted, in effect, uh, uh, by the uh, uh, Supreme Court in its 1977 ruling. And the archives, uh, rather than challenge that, uh, went along with that request and uh, is on a temporary basis pending the outcome of a review that is uh, now underway is due to be completed sometime, I gather, before the end of this year. Let me uh, change subject a little bit. Where are you from? Well, I uh, uh, was born in Chicago and grew up there and uh, went to uh, Northwestern where I majored in uh, journalism. And um, the idea of uh, doing a book like this really grows out of my, uh, my background and experience in journalism. And I think it's a, a somewhat new concept. We've had books before by historians of, of documents of... Um, um, Truman's letters or various presidential papers, often uh, long after the fact and uh, not edited to try to tell the whole story of the presidency as much as, as this is. And I uh, would dearly have loved to have had this on the market, also one uh, on uh, Jimmy Carter by uh, the time of the uh, 1988 election, but that just simply was not physically possible. But the, that concept grows out of, out of that, and uh, I've spent time, I was uh, in the Foreign Service overseas in the 1960s and promoted twice. I wanted to learn what the inside, the paper flow of a bureaucracy, I suppose that was my, my fascination. 
And then I've been back in Washington and living uh, in the Washington area for the last uh, uh, nearly 20 years now. What do you do when you're not writing books? <laughs> I spend my time in archives looking at uh, documents. Did you ever work for a newspaper? I worked, I covered uh, uh, Africa for the Chicago Daily News and Time Magazine in the late 60s. And then uh, once I came back, uh, spent some time at Columbia University under a uh, what was at that point their equivalent of the Neiman program in 69-70, uh, and then I've been freelancing in Washington ever since. So I uh, sold pieces to, uh, you name it, uh, I've sold it there. And I've, for the last uh, decade or so, as I've been poking around, I'm working primarily on a, on a book on Richard Nixon's foreign policy, and in a sense, uh, this was a spin-off from that project. I was uh, there when the herd... Uh, uh, came in the, uh, the, the press uh, uh, during uh, at, at the opening of the time these papers were opened in uh, 1987. I was uh, there quietly working on my uh, Nixon foreign policy book, and I expected that uh, uh, at least the major news organizations would assign someone who would, uh, or a team of reporters, uh, who would sit down and sift through these. Uh, papers for a series of articles that would be produced on a fairly orderly basis. Uh, given all of the fascination with Richard Nixon and his uh, secret files and uh, one thing and another, and instead what happened was uh, they came in, uh, stayed for one, two or three days, and uh, everybody left. And I was there alone working on my book uh, all by myself. And I said, well, here's all of these presidential memoranda. Uh, certainly someone needs to uh, get this out in the public domain. And I think anyone who reads this book fairly carefully can figure out from him, his or herself, uh, if they're a journalist, uh, uh, precisely uh, uh, what kinds of articles that uh, one might uh, produce for a series, uh, a newspaper series, uh, that could have appeared in 1987. Uh, but this didn't happen. I mean, one could have done an article on... Uh, uh, Nixon's memos, what he had to say, then there's, there's other things, the fact that the uh, plumber's papers, uh, uh, nine boxes, 230 uh, file folders, um, are missing, have not been seen since 1974, were supposed to have been released in 1987, but we still don't have even a determination by the uh, uh, Justice Department, for all I know, that, uh, that these might have been uh, illegally uh, uh, shredded or uh, stolen, and uh, I don't uh, know that they've even launched a criminal investigation in this. I mean, uh, Oliver North is accused of uh, pretty much the same thing. Uh, he's, he's admitted his shredding. We know uh, uh, what happened there, but uh, there were plenty of stories, in other words, to go at. And one of the other stories was, of course, the fact that inadvertently the, the archives um, managed uh, to release some of the pages that Richard Nixon would have preferred to be withheld. Like? Well, I've carefully marked them in, uh, in the book uh, so the, the reader can go through and decide for himself which he thinks should have been uh, withheld and which, which Richard Nixon might have been overreacting on. Have you marked the but, ones that... Uh... Uh, they're, they're indicated there. If you begin from the very beginning, uh, at the very first memoranda that I use in the... Uh, uh, in the book after the editor's note. Um, you'll see that the, uh, 
This one? That one there is a one is a memo that Richard Nixon asked uh, to be withheld. And um, uh, this is so indicated, if we can flip over. Sure. Um, here, you see where my finger is, right there. What's it say there? It says, uh, withdrawn from PPF-1 at the request of uh, Richard Nixon. Uh, PPF-1 means President's Personal File, Box Number 1, at the request of Richard Nixon. However, uh, you find a copy of that memo in H.R. Uh, Haldeman's uh, files, Box uh, 229. Um, now, you can uh, I, uh, happen to have reasonable grounds for believing that to be the case from a simple uh, technique that I employed, which was to uh, uh, obtain also a photocopy of the list of uh, documents that uh, uh, Nixon asked uh, to be uh, uh, withheld. And so I know uh, the date of a particular document that requested be withheld, who it's from, who it's to, what the subject matter is, or at least the first three words of the, uh, the memo in question. And from there, there is a 99.99% certainty when one finds a memo which uh, uh, fits that uh, description that it is uh, uh, the uh, memo in, in, in fact. And I uh, have confirmed um, from my sources in the archives that uh, uh, they were uh, uh, aware that some might be seeping uh, through, but they were asked to do this pro process of removing uh, 150,000 pages from this 3.2 million page collection in a space of a very few weeks. And of course, by the time Richard Nixon was president, the uh, photocopying technology was, was widespread, and there were just copies of these things all in, in several boxes. Harper and Rowe published this. How did you convince them to do it? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, Actually, it was my agent who did so, but uh, they, uh, they were intrigued. They showed them examples of the memos, and they had uh, no problem whatsoever uh, uh, in reaching a decision that it was time to, uh, to publish this stuff. Back in 87, you talked about the press coming in for a couple of days. Can you remember the, how many people you saw going through the memos? Um, there were quite a few. Actually, the days when the, the, uh, there was the heaviest concentrations, I tried to stay away. I would... Uh, ask when the archivist, uh, you know, well, the collection is opening on Monday and Tuesday. And I would call up and says, how bad is the mob in the room? And she says, oh, we've got a full house today. Uh, and then I said, well, I'll come in on Wednesday. I'd come in on Wednesday, and they were, they were pretty much gone. I did see a few people going through. But I gather it was, it was quite a scene, and a scene worth covering in and of itself. Uh, you almost have a television camera in there covering it, because what you get, there's a room uh, with, uh, let's see, what is it, one, two, three, four, five. Uh, about nine tables there, and one uh, desk for the archivist to sit there overseeing the room and the handling. The papers have to be handled, of course, in a rather careful fashion. But one got the wire services in there and everybody getting all uh, excited. You know, here, I've got one. I've got a hot one. And, and somebody else, you know, trying to keep each other. And, and these boxes have to be handled in a, cir in, in a manner. And, of course, they're all on deadline. Uh, having to uh, file before the day is out and, and trying to figure out when to file and all of that process, which you can understand. Now, I, uh, you know, the wires are the wires. I've, I worked for City News Bureau in Chicago a little bit before Cy Hirsch did. Um, so I understand the problem of the wire services. I've had to, uh, I remember in Af my days in Africa, I uh, 
had to uh, sometimes walk through the night to the single cable office in town when, when a taxi uh, couldn't be found. But it seems to me with uh, presidential papers that uh, um, it would uh, be appropriate for the uh, uh, press to really take someone who perhaps, say, covered the, the Nixon administration. The New York Times, for instance, sent uh, John Finney there to head its team. Um, but uh, they took a look at this volume of paper and realizing that the 150,000 pages with, were withheld, they were, and I do think there's, there's a lot more to be uh, found in those 150,000 pages. But then they didn't do the logical thing, was to say, well, well let's, let's take a look and see what is there anyway. Are you glad? Well, I'm glad in the sense that I was able to get a book out of it, sure. But, uh, you know, there's an irony in all of this. Remember that the New York Times, during the uh, uh, Pentagon Papers uh, dispute, which, remember, the Pentagon Papers in 1971 were primarily agency documents, State Department, Pentagon, what have you. Uh, they were not uh, Lyndon Johnson's presidential uh, memoranda uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And everyone got all excited about the release of these. And uh, Richard Nixon certainly overreacted and, but, uh, at that time. Uh, but the argument of the Times in publishing those, I think, was absolutely correct. There is no question the Times, Washington Post, and others, once a, a, a bureaucrat, had, a government employee, had made the decision to put these out, the press should not be responsible for uh, determining whether given documents, a set of documents that is given, are the release of those is authorized or unauthorized. That's something for government to uh, uh, take care of uh, itself. But it seems to me that it is appropriate for the press, which uh, thrives certainly on the release, unauthorized release of materials, and uh, sits in a courthouse, for instance, in Oliver North uh, day after day looking for another document or two, to at least give uh, serious treatment to uh, major releases of, of presidential materials. And uh, you're not going to have uh, very many more newsworthy figures, uh, newsworthy releases of materials than the, than the uh, special files of Richard Nixon. Remember that in... Uh, and this leads to the next question. I'll <laughs> take it right out of your mouth. But these files were created in September of 1972 by, uh, uh, upon Nixon's instructions. The materials physically were taken out of the White House central files and were located into a, what was called the White House special files. Now that meant that when there were inquiries from Congress or whomever, uh, about what the White House records showed um, in 71 and early 72 uh, or later, that the White House could respond um, uh, that, well, nothing is uh, to be found on uh, Subject X in um, the White House, or we're giving you everything there is to be found on Subject X in um, the White House central files. Meanwhile, of course, all the good stuff would be over in, in the White House uh, uh, special files. And so therefore there was an enormous interest when this was uh, discovered during the Watergate uh, period that the special files had been created. It's meant uh, that you had an enormous interest in this particular file. 
Richard Nixon has incidentally uh, done the same thing once again with another round of this by identifying these 150,000 pages now out of the 3.2 million as the hottest stuff. And so I'm sure the, the mob has no choice, but if and when those 150,000 pages are released, um, that is the other 99% that I don't have in my book, um, to, to be down at the archives and, and be there. I, hope, I, I think it would be marvelous for C-SPAN just to cover the scene in that research room when the mob goes in there. I think the nation would howl with laughter. When's it going to happen? <laughs> um, that's a very good question. If uh, Richard Nixon decides not to sue, uh, let's see, the, the review process, uh, let me back up for a second. The review process will continue throughout uh, the course of this year, and presumably the archives, I would guess, uh, review panel will probably agree with Richard Nixon, Nixon's conclusion, that is the conclusion of his attorneys, on perhaps 10% uh, or so uh, of the 150,000 pages. Um, and Richard Nixon's people, in turn, may agree with uh, the archives on uh, um, uh, perhaps 10% uh, or so of the materials, and there will be a, uh, a disagreement on perhaps a, a substantial majority, the whole perhaps 60, 70, 80%, we don't know. Um, at that point, Richard Nixon has to decide whether to uh, uh, sue, uh, challenging the judgment of the archives. If uh, he doesn't, then these, in turn, will come open at some point, uh, presumably uh, next year. Here's August 12th. I just opened it up. August 12, 1972, from the president. This is written by Richard Nixon, correct? It says uh, from the president. Okay, right. To H.R. Haldeman, his chief of staff. Covering some odds and ends. Milton Pitts, the barber, has indicated on a couple of occasions that he would very, uh, he'd be very glad to go to Florida during the period of the campaign at his own expense. Apparently, he has a brother who lives in Miami, and he would like to go down and visit him for a few days. My guess is that this is probably for personal purposes as much as anything else, but it occurred to me that... Uh, Having taken his predecessor down, and if we have the room, that you might have it arranged for him to go down on one of our planes, not mine, but under, but the understanding that he should not indicate that he is going down for the purpose of providing any services for me. It goes on and on and on. Why did you put that in there? Because it uh, is readable, because it is substantive, and uh, the memo goes on, I think, doesn't it, for quite a long... Uh... Oh, yeah, it's a very long memo. Right. It starts well, you have to read off the, the whole thing. But it talks about the barber, and I just wondered if, it, if, if that was one of the more humorous things you, that you had some irony in that uh... uh well in that specific one i the only ones that we did not choose there were a handful of the ones that uh, nixon wrote that uh, were of uh, uh, an ad strictly purely administrative nature now this one is a very long one you'd have to read the whole thing to uh look into what else he was saying but nixon some some of these were you know several thousand words in length that did you cut nixon... any of the memos down themselves um, I think one or two, and we've indicated where one or two are, are, have been shortened uh, a little bit, but we've kept in the, uh, uh, the substance. Uh, Here's another one, August 5th. This one's from Charles Colson to Ken Clausen, who was a press aide. Right. Couldn't we do better than this? Question mark. It is incredible to me that this is all we have gotten out of Charlton Heston. <laughs> right. We see campaign techniques. Uh, it, it was... Uh, uh, Deeply of deep concern to me that uh, I regretted that we couldn't have this out during the time of the campaign last year uh, because we see uh, firsthand the uh, P 
people inside the White House uh, uh, handling the 72 campaign. I mean, this is one way to describe this book, is this is a view from inside the fort in the uh, American Civil War, the 20th century. And we've never really seen the view from inside. We've all, all we've seen in the press uh, and everything else that's been written about it is either a, uh, a single view from inside, which those memoirs are always self-serving, or we've uh, seen the press accounts from outside the barricades. We haven't really seen materials from, from the inside. One of the things that could be done uh, that hasn't been done, you know, to date with the campaigns, I think the most logical thing, we provide a lot of uh, money for the presidential candidates um, to uh, conduct their campaigns. And there have been several good ideas as to what could be done, and uh, one of which I would strongly favor, which would be uh, no uh, public monies to be used for those 30-second or one-minute uh, commercials, that the only public money could be used for something at least five minutes in length. And that would seem to me the beginning of wisdom. But another uh, technique that could be used is saying that any candidate for, for uh, the presidency who accepts public money should, should also be required to put the papers of his campaign, uh, collect and save them and not destroy them, and turn them over to the archives for release to the public. There are techniques, in other words, political techniques, which can be used to, uh, if not end the kind of nonsense that took place during the campaign last year, at least limit it to uh, uh, much... Uh, change the rules of the game a bit for the better for the public all concerned. As you read through this book, one name that keeps coming up all the time is Lou Harris. Oh, you've, uh, you've, you're the first person to uh, uh, call attention to that one. Uh, we've only used, I've only used part of the Lou Harris memos. There are a lot more over there in Alexandria, if anyone who uh, uh, <laughs> is wondering about it. I found it one of the most fascinating uh, aspects of the 72 campaign. Uh, Lou Harris, of course, is a pollster, and uh, he was uh, uh, putting out some polls in uh, 70 and 71, I believe it was, that, that were very, uh, uh, that Nixon thought were uh, rather unfair, didn't cast Nixon in as fair a light as possible. So what happened was a campaign to uh, put a bit of political arm on Mr. Harris. Um, he was stroked on the one hand, uh, uh, a trip to Moscow, invitations to the White House, that kind of thing. But by the same token, it's very clear in these memos and uh, materials that uh, he was also threatened with the loss of uh, the contracts that he held with some government agencies. And uh, it is certainly for Mr. Harris himself to, to say how much he was uh, or was not uh, he felt influenced by all this pressure, but you see from the documents themselves the fact that there was considerable pressure and that he certainly, in his responses to the White House, um, uh, seemed to uh, change his attitude quite substantially um, how before unhappy, the 72 campaign. How unhappy is Lou Harris about all this being published? Do you have any idea? I've never met the man of that, no contact, I have no idea whatsoever. You get an impression when you read that uh, he was known as a Democrat, had worked in the Kennedy uh, years, I believe, early in, in these memos, and then and you, you see, a, even at one point, you see Pat Buchanan getting upset that Chuck Colson seems to curry favor with Lou Harris and that he's being, he's, he's fooling himself into thinking that he's going to be on Right, but Chuck side. turned him around, right, right. 
Uh, I appeared on the Today Show, speaking of Chuck Colson, uh, with him on uh, February 15th, and I was delighted to see that he gave a very good commercial for the book. But uh, uh, afterwards, uh, he said, well, he was, uh, as he, he signed a copy of the book for me, he said that uh, he was glad uh, uh, to see that there were a few memos of his that I hadn't found. I asked him which ones, and he said uh, that they were... Uh, uh, ones in which uh, he and Buchanan were planning this uh, a campaign to uh, get the president's attention and change his mind on a few things uh, that he and uh, Pat felt uh, were important and get around Haldeman, the, the so-called German wall, uh, the, uh, through the, the, staff the staff layering uh, uh, at the White House. I, I can't see particularly what's so... Uh, of such great concern about that, why he would want to keep those out, but, uh, for instance, when so much else is out. But uh, I'm, uh, he, he did happen to mention that, uh, that to me. Any, re any reaction from Richard Nixon himself about this? Uh, no, and I would, I would certainly welcome it. I sent him a copy of the book together with a letter uh, the uh, first day I received my first copy. And I know that uh, his office uh, uh, knew that I was uh, working on the book. In fact, I discussed it uh, with John Taylor, his aide, uh, uh, when Nixon was in uh, Washington in April of 19, uh, last year, 1988. Um, I mentioned that, that I was working on the book. One of the other things that comes through is that, uh, in some of these memos, is that there were those inside the White House who were aides to Richard Nixon, who he personally kept referring to in the memos, in less than a positive light, uh, that they weren't really on his side. Leonard Garment seems to come to mind in that process. Uh, in, the, in the relationship with the media, you, you keep reading about Herb Klein being on the other side of where Chuck Colson was with the media. What else did you see in there? Well, there are a number of those cases, and Klein certainly did take his lumps, and as we know, left uh, the administration uh, uh, early on, but uh, the relationship, I've uh, seen them on, on a couple of occasions, uh, certainly continues to this day, seems to be, uh, the, perhaps the publication of this will uh, uh, help reestablish a, uh, uh, more warmth in the relationship. Uh, Klein certainly has remained quite loyal to uh, Nixon throughout uh, his career, and in his own book, Klein uh, uh, is critical of a few things that happened in the 60 campaign and you know Herb Klein is probably right in all of these things and I think if as Richard Nixon looks back at what uh, Klein uh, uh, did and was saying and the point of view he was taking on 72 he would have to realize now uh, that Klein was uh, uh, really correct in in his interview with NBC in April of um, uh, 88 um, Nixon suggested uh, at one point that he probably had been too rough on the press. It was quite an admission, um, and, and that, that was true. I mean, Nixon, it was a carrot and stick technique uh, that Nixon used on the press. You know, it was Nixon who created uh, the improved conditions of the White House for reporters, and there was a lot of courting of the press. But by the same token, Nixon really used more of a stick than uh, had ever been used before in the press, the Des Moines speech. And, 69 that was uh, really written, uh, I suppose, by Buchanan primarily uh, for, uh, uh, and, and Nixon, uh, Agnew delivered the speech. 
but um, it was a carrot and stick technique that was applied and uh, there are uh, to a certain degree that's going to continue I'm sure it continues uh, in the Bush administration to this to this day but there are limits it seems to me that uh, to the uh, extent of the technique and the, one of the most amazing discoveries I made uh, during the course of doing the book was that um, well, what we knew is that, that their dirty tricks were used against the political opposition during the uh, uh, 72 campaign. And we knew that Nixon hated the press, but we, didn't, we haven't really known, and we've suspected, that there may have been dirty tricks used against the press, but not until I see these documents do we really know that dirty tricks were, in fact, used uh, against the press. Um, and the dirty trick, uh, the procedure, uh, specifically, was the use of... Uh, uh, disinformation, uh, black propaganda against the press, uh, uh, network anchors, uh, or Dan Rather, or John Chancellor, or someone, Walter Cronkite, would say something that was not uh, particularly appreciated in the White House. The uh, <coughs> White House would then uh, uh, get out a suggested uh, letter or telephone call memo, which would go over to the Republican National Committee, and then the Republican National Committee would con uh, contact its friends around the country, and uh, these people would contact uh, NBC, CBS, ABC, and say that, um, uh, uh, you know, express their opinion on a given uh, uh, subject uh, without telling NBC, CBS, ABC that. Uh, they were doing so uh, upon the uh, explicit instructions of, of the White House. Now, many of these people didn't know that it was the White House that was doing it. They thought it was the Republican National Committee. Perhaps they could be, uh, they were a bit naive in their own mind. But I think that's, that's really uh, grossly unfair. It's really uh, a, a lack of uh, civility uh, in the relationship between press and politician to uh, uh, for the politicians to use on a systematic basis that technique. Uh, the technique in and of itself is the kind of thing that on an informal basis we would use almost every day. Uh, you know, uh, we're sitting here talking and, and you say, tell me that uh, there is somebody else does something uh, um, that you don't like. And I might say to you, well, write him a letter and call him. Uh, that's perfectly normal uh, technique. But when, as uh, was the case in the Nixon administration, the president orders, as he did in uh, 1969, the summer of 69, a specific program to be organized on an organized basis to do this kind of thing regularly and routinely on a large scale and to do it to the press, I think it a <laughs> goes over the the boundary, the, the, the line of propriety and civility that we're trying to... Uh, uh, Nixon's, the line at the time, as you recall, was that it was lower our voices. Uh, now it's kinder and gentler, but it was lower our voices was the slogan 20 years ago. And um, that wasn't really a way to lower our, appropriate way to lower our voices. What most surprised you about Richard Nixon in, in reading these memos? Well, I can't say that I was surprised by the, the uh, depth of his intellect. I find him one of the most fascinating uh, American presidents of this century. I think he'll be remembered as that. Um, uh, that's why I think uh, it's correct, as one re reviewer has said, that Nixon uh, lovers will 
love this book, and Nixon haters will, will love this book also. Um, uh, there's this uh, an incredibly uh, uh, organized uh, ability to to uh, see see himself as a as a third person, um, look at himself, uh, uh, and and be interested in the marketing of that third person. Uh, to an extent, and this is perhaps true, goes back to his birth in California, uh, the fact that he uh, was always been interested in the movies from an early age, and um, so therefore he uh, developed uh, uh, an interest in the, in the, the media from a very early point uh, in his, uh, in his uh, school years and in fact took a journalism course at Whittier College, which Stephen Ambrose uh, looked at the grades, discovered he got a C in journalism his freshman year, and maybe that's the, the origins of uh, <laughs> his, uh, his problems with the press. But uh, uh, I think if uh, Nixon thinks back on his career, and I think it, it, I've, I've suggested if I, in my cover letter to him that one of the things he should do for, uh, for posterity's sake uh, would be to do an, an essay of a length that he would deem appropriate on the press and its appropriate relations, uh, uh, appropriate role in a democracy. Um, he's, uh, he's talked about the press, complained about it throughout his political career, uh, sometimes spoken diplomatically of it, at other times spoken very harshly of it, and it really would be very helpful uh, to historians, and I think serve a contemporary purpose if he were to uh, set aside uh, uh, for a moment all of uh, his, his work on foreign policy and do a, a, a uh, serious essay on what are the limits and what should be the limits of uh, uh, the relationship uh, of the politician to the press. Um, that, I think, is... is uh, uh, a very central thing. As I'm working on his foreign policy, obviously there are a few bits and pieces that come through in Nixon's memos. Um, I find there uh, nothing, you know, his, Nixon's contention that he would have been able to do a great deal more in the Middle East had he uh, um, uh, been allowed to finish his second term. There's nothing that I've seen so far that would, would dispute that contention. Let me ask you about this memo right here. Um, it, well, did it strike you as being strange at all that this memo came from the president to Mrs. Nixon? And in the memo, he refers to himself as the president. Um, right. Now, there's... Mr. Nixon may wish to... Maybe someone will ask him about it someday, but uh, I would make two observations on a memo like that. One, that it, in all likelihood, was uh, dictated late at night in... Uh, uh, some very busy times when he's trying to get a lot of things done and get organized and get things moving in the White House. And um, so uh, he also had a lot of things that Mrs. Nixon was, was doing to uh, help him um, get organized. And so the memo was dictated in the third person because she was then going to be dealing with the uh, GSA director. And therefore, all it would, she would need to do would uh, uh, be to 
change, uh, reroute the, the memo to the GSA director without changing the language. So it was, it was it maybe an example of uh, the efficiency, the administrative efficiency, that uh, is certainly an aspect of uh, Richard Nixon that's an important one to remember. Remember, it was not only H.R. Haldeman, it was very efficient. Hamilton Jordan, I have to interrupt here to, to say, Hamilton Jordan, during Jimmy Carter's uh, administration, failed to date many of the memos that he wrote President Carter. I mean, I found this out relatively recently, and the archivists, I think we all, should all be appalled by, by Mr. Jordan's uh, failure to, to do that. One thing you have to say about Bob Haldeman is he was extremely uh, efficient, perhaps efficient to, to a fault, but it was Richard Nixon who, uh, who wanted and helped and cultivated uh, Bob Haldeman to be his, his chief of staff. And so Nixon does have a turn of mind that uh, insists upon administrative efficiency. And we'll note that in that memo, uh, going back to that memo again, that uh, raised in there, I believe, the question of having two dictaphones uh, by his nightstand. And um, it was, again, an example of the, organize, the organization in his mind. One, of course, was for, for current government business uh, to be transcribed, and the other was to create his, uh, his diary, which uh, uh, those tapes were, were not transcribed, uh, but were, he took them from the White House with them, and those are one of the things that uh, we certainly must all hope that he will uh, deed to the uh, nation so that uh, in, in, uh, in their entirety so that we can uh, someday uh, be able to, to study him uh, that much more closely. Let me ask you about uh, a sense that you, you may have gotten from watching this thing up closely. After you read all these memos, did you get a sense that the president set the mood and that all the aides around him were marching to his tune or vice versa? <laughs> Richard Nixon ran the Nixon administration. There was a, a lot of press interest and speculation in the question, for instance, Henry Kissinger's influence um, and importance on foreign policy. And uh, Henry Kissinger was influential and very important in Gerald Ford's foreign policy. And he certainly would get a point in or two with Richard Nixon, but as I'm sure Dr. Kissinger will uh, acknowledge, he, uh, Richard Nixon, uh, set the tone for foreign policy in the Nixon administration, and Henry Kissinger was simply a spear carrier. What's the name Otis? <laughs> Where it come from? Uh, well, it comes from, um, in French it would be pronounced Oud, and I had an ancestor who was a, uh, a coachman in Napoleon's uh, army uh, who had defected uh, on the way to Moscow and uh, uh, settled in uh, Central Europe and uh, then in uh, uh, early in this century my grandfather came uh, to the United States and that's uh, settled in the uh, Chicago area. How many copies did they print on this, the first printing? Uh, 35,000 of which uh, the first printing's uh, about sold out, I understand. I think uh, there's going to be a decision shortly to go to a uh, uh, second printing. you get any sense of what kind of people bought it? A variety of people. I've been around to a number of bookstores. Uh, uh, you have uh, 
for, for college students or for college faculty members, first of all, there's, there's a, this is an excellent tool to, uh, one can just assign this book to uh, a class uh, in uh, modern uh, American politics and say, uh, uh, you know, do you think Richard Nixon should really have been uh, impeached? Uh, and the articles of impeachment, in fact, are at the back of the book, so one can go through there and uh, after read all the memos and then read the articles of, or reread, as the case may be, the articles of impeachment. And um, so it's designed for serious, as a tool to help uh, serious academics, but it can also easily be a coffee table book. One can uh, just read, if one has a few minutes, uh, a few memos and pick up the book a few days later. It's not as though you're getting engrossed in a... Um, uh, a dense uh, historical tome that is uh, very difficult to uh, uh, pick up again once you've put it down. I mean, uh, this book could be and should be, I think, read through uh, uh, very uh, seriously from front to back, but one can sort of delve into it uh, and uh, just uh, uh, look through it on a, on a lighter basis. Should want to get a sense over on this other page right across here. You you run throughout this book and in, in, in various times uh, editorials from the Grant County Press, Petersburg, West Virginia. Is this your way of giving us what you thought about this at this time? Well, not really, in a sense. I think it's much more objective than that. Um, the uh, uh, problem of Richard Nixon was and the question of impeachment uh, and his the decision on resignation came about when he finally lost the support of the republicans in the senate uh, who could have blocked uh, uh, an impeachment on, on, a, on a vote and it's very important for readers to uh, i think to understand that and remember that it was not just there was no question but that uh, the witch hunts that were launched, uh, that were taking place inside the White House, begat witch hunts uh, outside the White House. Um, and that uh, Richard Nixon, one talks about Richard Nixon's paranoia. Well, he had reason to believe, certainly after 72 and 73, that a lot of people were, were after him. The question of whether he was paranoid or not during 73 uh, is uh, uh, certainly one to to discuss. They really, there were a lot of people. He was quite accurate in that uh, regard. But it was as, as these revelations uh, unfolded in 73, uh, uh, editors around the country of small weekly newspapers um, were, uh, and, and others, people around the country, suddenly had to realize that this was a very serious thing. This wasn't just a, a New York and Washington uh, media event. And um, that uh, there was some serious anguish going on in the country. And I have a, uh, a farm in uh, Grant County, West Virginia. And um, uh, Alice Welton happened to be a longtime editor of the paper, of, uh, its Republican roots. Uh, uh, Abe Lincoln's uh, mother was uh, said to have been born uh, nearby. Um, and um, it's a Republican enclave in a, in a state that is two to one Democratic. And um, I remembered as I went through these documents uh, that um, uh, Alice uh, had printed uh, uh, 
some editorials in 73, and, and so I got the idea of going back. Uh, to me, at the time, it was when I first realized the depth of Richard Nixon's difficulty. I would commute from Washington out to West Virginia, and it was not until I read the press and read what Alice was writing that I realized that, whoa, this wasn't something that uh, uh, would be limited to Washington and New York and the big cities and something that would come across on the network uh, news, but that the crisis was really percolating down to the uh, local level. And when Alice Welton started writing those editorials, it was certainly a clear signal to the Democrats who represent West Virginia in uh, Congress uh, that, uh, uh, and to, uh, to all of those who might have read them, and, and there, I'm sure there were a lot of other small towns around the country where similar editorials were written, that it was time to seriously proceed with uh, uh, the investigation uh, in the House uh, Judiciary Committee on Nixon. And it just seemed to me appropriate to symbolize, as a, uh, rather than reprint the New York Times or Washington Post editorials, but to reprint them from a a small town weekly. We only have a couple minutes. At any time in this project, publishing these memos and going to the files, were you ever motivated yourself politically, either for or against Richard Nixon? I'm uh, really trying to to understand him. Um, I've always, I, I hope I've been fair uh, to him through all of this. Um, sure, I've been motivated politically. I mean, I'm a, a, an animal who tries to understand politics. I was. Uh, uh, president of my high school senior class, and it was I was also editor in chief of my high school newspaper. <laughs> so I was playing both sides of the street at that time, and I made a very conscious decision after that fact that that I really didn't want to get into the political uh, debate on one side or the other. I uh, uh, and, and I have some reservations, for instance, about uh, the idea that's being broadcast by many conservatives that really originated in the Nixon years, that we should have our politics organized along British lines, that is, conservatives on one side and labor and liberals all on the other side. I think the American tradition uh, uh, has been that, uh, you know, there should be an important uh, moderate element within the Republican Party and a more important uh, moderate element within the Democratic Party, and that our politics really should be centrist politics. I mean, I think that's the great strength of this country. So, uh, no, I did not have partisan motives. I'm, I'm still trying to understand Nixon. Some things I agree with him on, some things I don't. Our guest for the last hour has been Bruce Otis. As you can see here, this is the sick, thick 661-page book published by Harper and Row, and it includes many memoranda from the era of 1969 to 1974, written by Richard Nixon and other of his aides. Thank you very much for joining us. You're quite welcome. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.